Hey everybody, this is the first of a bonus couple of episodes that we have for you that we're going to be releasing in addition to our regular main episodes. So a few months back, a listener named Will reached out to us to discuss some ideas that he'd been working on about the confluence of food systems, cybernetics, and labor time accounting in the vein of the group of international communists. Obviously, this is like right up our alley. So after a bit of correspondence, Will sent us this extended paper that he wrote called Agro-Industrial Society and its future. Um, the paper is insane. It's really amazing. It covers everything from the aforementioned food system, cybernetics, labor time accounting stuff, but it also touches on post-capitalist food production and soil ecology and Hutchinsonian niche theory and computer programming and linear algebra and socialist city planning and cooking. Basically, you name it. It's an introduction to how we can begin thinking about sustainable food production and the general kind of autopoiesis slash reproduction of a socialist society. So Dan and I were really amazed when we first read this. It's clearly the culmination of years of work on Will's part, and even though none of this has been published anywhere yet, he's been kind enough to let us share what he wrote with you, um, and kind of with a wider audience. So we think that this stuff is absolutely vital to any kind of socialist project worth its salt, and as we said, it's pretty mind-blowing. So the paper is well over 30,000 words, so we're going to release these um, in chunks. Um, I'm going to be reading the paper out loud. Um, we'll release it you know, kind of over the next few weeks, something like that, whenever I kind of can get around to reading it all. Um, but we'll also put the paper itself, as well as all of the different diagrams, spreadsheets, recipes, and all the academic essays and studies that get mentioned in the paper up on Dropbox or Drive or something so that everybody can have a look at it themselves. Um, I'd highly recommend doing that because it will make what we're going to be talking about <laughs> uh, much more clear. Um, so if you have any questions or if you want to know more about this massive project, I'm sure we can pass a message along or something or just put you in touch with Will. Um, like I said, this is a huge undertaking on Will's part, so I'm sure feedback or, you know, collaborative efforts or something like that would be more than welcome. But that's enough for me. So here is the first part of Will's essay, Agro-Industrial Society and Its Future, in which he gives us a little background on market gardening, soil chemistry, and ecological systems theory, as well as some words on his plans for building a geospatial mapping software that can help make agricultural planning possible. To Jack and Dan, I didn't really talk much about food systems in the email I sent you a couple months ago, and I'm trying to develop an agricultural system, so I guess I'll just start there. The most developed part of that aspect of the project consists of the area of agriculture I'm directly involved in day-to-day, -day, which is annual vegetable and fruit production, and to a lesser extent perennial crops like berries and asparagus. That's a major focus partly because it's what I know best, but it's also one of the most inherently complex areas of agriculture because you're dealing with a very large variety of crops and they tend to have higher soil quality, nutrient, and water requirements. Most of these plants don't lend themselves well to mechanization, and those that are well suited to a mechanical harvesting tend to only be worth growing that way in a very specific area, with just the right soil and environmental conditions. They also vary in how long they can be stored. The conditions they need to be stored in can vary wildly. Many of them are highly perishable or are only useful as food at specific stages of ripeness that are fleeting, like tomatoes. The methods I'm using on come from the market gardening tradition, which I think is a good tradition, but that means the systems I'm working on are very limited in scope. Where I'm at, at least in the US, these systems, or later variations of them, are very much dominant in the industry, and the local organic area of production is where you see methods being used that are the closest to historical market gardening methods of growing. 
This particular style of gardening reached its height of development during the mid-1800s to early 1900s due to the readily available horse manure from the cities and the need to make extremely compact vegetable production systems to utilize expensive growing lands close to the rapidly developing cities of Europe and the U.S., though I'm sure systems very much like these existed throughout the rest of the world as well at the time. These were predominantly bed systems that were designed to be as space efficient as possible with paths between beds that are extremely narrow, sometimes so narrow that you can barely walk in between them, with very tight successions of crops in each bed that had to fit the narrow planting and harvesting time frames typical of temperate environments. There were also a lot of interesting trellising systems developed around that time that were incorporated into these gardens, sometimes including espaliered fruit trees trained along curved brickwork systems derived from the wall gardens of the wealthy. To retain more of the heat absorbed during the day by these brick walls, they began enclosing them on the sunny side with glass, even including coal-fired heating systems built into the walls. This eventually led to glass greenhouses that were either coal-heated or using elaborate steam heating systems. This was also the period when a lot of the familiar heirloom varieties were developed, or the foundations for these heated greenhouses, or for complicated early forcing systems for crops like melons. Kropotkin's writing is full of descriptions of growing systems like this that were really cutting edge at the time. By the late 1800s, these systems were beginning to be perfected, and combined with improved breathing methods, they were doing some very impressive things considering the limited technology they were working with at the time. Of course, once horsepower became replaced by the internal combustion engine, all of this soon changed. The cheap supply of manure dried up and vegetable production shifted towards the large-scale systems made possible by tractor power and, post-World War I, by the Haber-Bosch process that allowed for large-scale ammonia synthesis. The modern variants of these systems that are typical of the current state of organic gardens like the one I work at are highly simplified compared to the historical systems. To reduce the labor required for weeding and to warm beds for earlier crops, black plastic mulch is laid down by tractors after the rows are formed and plants are transported into the holes in the plastic. This isn't possible for all crops. Those that require direct seeding, like carrots, must be grown in exposed beds, but it's the general practice for the majority of bed systems that you'll find in market gardens throughout the United States. When this system is used, you're basically forced to use drip irrigation, which is placed over the top of the beds beneath the plastic. These drip irrigation lines need to be set up every year because if they're left out during winter, the water in them will freeze and destroy them. These systems constantly leak in random places and need to be repaired, and are very prone to getting holes cut in them when doing hand weeding. They tend to use one standard width of 30 inches for the beds, because that's the size almost all of the machinery is made for, and it's narrow enough to step over them in the field and to reach the center of the beds when working in them. This allows for a field to be subdivided into 4 foot wide sections using 18 inch wide walkways. The beds are generally at least 50 feet long, but often are 120 feet in length in the larger gardens because this allows a square one hectare plot to contain two fields of beds with enough space in between them for vehicles to maneuver. Every year in the spring we reform these beds with a tractor, lay out the plastic mulch and set up irrigation lines, then in the fall this plastic must be taken back off by hand which inevitably tears up into a thousand tiny pieces that get lost in the field, then the irrigation lines need to be taken down and stored, then the field is plowed with a tractor and a cover crop is planted. Whatever beneficial effects this cover crop might supply in terms of organic matter contribution is surely negated by the constant plowing that's necessary to maintain this style of gardening, which burns up the organic matter by exposing it to oxygen. 
We almost exclusively fertilize these beds using nothing but chicken manure because it's extremely concentrated, so less needs to be moved in terms of weight, and it's cheap to buy from confined animal feeding operations, compost being deemed uneconomical to use because of the large quantities required and the labor involved in placing it in the beds. This chicken manure is simply scattered on top of the beds, not incorporated into the soil as it should be done, so a large amount of the nitrogen is lost to the air because it rapidly volatilizes into ammonia gas. Most of the nitrogen that remains will not be available to the crop because it takes time for it to break down into the soil. So when these beds are plowed down at the end of the year, this nitrogen is scattered throughout the field, inevitably feeding the weeds that quickly overtake the walkways that are conveniently too narrow to effectively be mowed. The only way around this situation is to essentially use a permanent bed system that is set up once and never plowed down so that the organic fertilizers that are added remain in the soil for the crops in the following years and organic matter can remain in the beds and not be mixed into the rest of the soil in the field. Applying a plastic mulch over this then becomes rather impractical because it must be buried on either side of the bed with soil and that requires reforming the bed itself. This limits you to basically having an exposed surface that will need to be weeded using hand tools, or if it gets out of control, by hand with a knife. This is essentially how these systems had always been done, weeding being assumed to be an inherent feature of vegetable and fruit gardening. Drip irrigation can then be abandoned in this system and replaced with sprinkler irrigation that use more water, but are the only practical way to irrigate an open field setting, though drip irrigation remains the only practical option when growing inside a greenhouse or where water is scarce. To effectively manage weeds in a system like this, a wire hoe must be used until the crop develops enough to form a complete canopy over the soil, and this is pulled across the entire surface of all the beds regularly to kill weeds while they are still in the seedling stage. Once the crop forms a canopy, the weeds are effectively kept under control with only periodic maintenance. Now systems may differ in terms of what soil amendments are added to these beds and how they are incorporated, but I do think that this is the general structure that's required if you're trying to establish a system of vegetable growing that's based on the market gardening bed systems. A good example of this kind of system would be Connor Crickmore's garden, though he has the advantage of working in well-draining sandy soils that are easier to work by hand. Open field systems such as these can be very productive, especially in places with fairly regular mild weather and long cool seasons like in regions near the coast or by large lakes. But once you move into the interior of a continent where I am, or into higher altitudes and latitudes, the weather becomes more extreme and unpredictable, there's less rainfall, and you're working in harsher conditions unfavorable for vegetable and fruit production. Season extension systems become more important in areas like this to have a reliable crop at all, and many crops may only be possible by using these methods. The open field may still give enough yields year to year to make them worth maintaining, but the range of crops that will perform well in them will be more restricted. Working undercover brings with it its own set of problems. Crop rotation becomes more difficult to achieve due to limited space, salt buildup becomes an issue because rain isn't reaching the soil and leaching the salts out, and a good understanding of ventilation is essential for temperature control and to prevent stagnant air that promotes fungal disease. Plus, drainage systems need to be well thought out to move water away from the structure because rainfall is diverted to the perimeter of the greenhouse. Even in a location that allows nothing but open field systems to be used, a market garden style system still needs, at a minimum, some sort of greenhouse to serve as a propagation house for seed starting and to raise seedlings to be used in transplanting. A hoop house is the most common kind of greenhouse used in the market gardening system. It's a simple structure made of galvanized steel piping that form arches that are usually spaced four feet apart to form a half cylinder, though a pointed roof made from gothic arches is also common, especially in areas with higher snow loads. 
Several of these placed side by side to form a larger structure with gutters to remove the water that collects between the ridges gives you what's called a gutter connected system, and if the structure is to be heated at all, this is a far superior structure. Any stationary greenhouse should really be a gutter connector greenhouse, and the only reason you would use a hoop house is if you lack the capital to construct a gutter connected greenhouse. The only real exception to this is the sort of movable hoop houses that Elliot Coleman experiments with, because they can overcome many of the inherent disadvantages of the stationary hoop house, and they allow for many interesting crop rotation systems that aren't possible otherwise. I won't go into the details of those systems here, but they play a large role in the systems that I'm trying to develop, and although they are still highly experimental, I think they are worth pursuing further. That's just a very general overview of the sort of system that I'm actively trying to understand and work with. There are all kinds of interesting alternative systems that people are working on, and I'm sure these can have advantages over the one that I'm trying to develop. Without working with those systems, though, I can't really have any informed opinions on them, especially if they are systems designed for tropical environments, which are inherently very different from those in temperate environments, like the one I live in. I do think that any temperate vegetable gardening system meant to be used for commercial production should be directly compared to a market gardening system to assess its feasibility and possible advantages, because that is the system it would be competing with in the market. Home or very small-scale gardening is a completely different kind of system, and there are all kinds of reasons that labor productivity or yield per area of land would not be prioritized when designing a system like that. Even large-scale systems that are meant to operate independently of a market or at a greatly reduced level of technical complexity would have totally different design requirements, and I can see all kinds of possible reasons other kinds of growing systems may have real advantages on a societal level. A large amount of world agricultural production is still oxen or water buffalo powered because it is a system that fundamentally works and that will continue working regardless of any later developments. Annual vegetable and fruit production is, however, only one small part of a much larger agricultural system. And in an organic-based system, it relies on other cropping systems for its primary physical inputs to maintain fertility, like sources of biomass for producing compost or concentrated sources of plant nutrients, like manure. If these inputs are moved off of other fields to sustain the more resource-intensive system of gardening, that puts pressure on these larger, less complex systems in terms of maintaining organic matter and soil nutrient levels in the soil. Organic matter and nitrogen can be regenerated in these fields through biosynthetic processes, but there are still limits to the rate that these processes occur that are influenced by the environmental conditions like air temperature, soil properties, or precipitation patterns. All soil nutrients other than nitrogen, and most importantly phosphorus and potassium, must in some way be returned to these fields to maintain an equilibrium that allows for their soils to remain fertile. There's a lot that can be done as far as nutrient recycling goes. There are sewage systems that can effectively recycle wastewater back into the water supply and retrieve a lot of these nutrients, but the entire stormwater system would need to be fundamentally redesigned for this to be practical. It would be very difficult on a societal level to avoid some degree of phosphate and potassium mining to maintain soil fertility overall, but it could surely greatly be reduced. When phosphorus and potassium are added to soils, they become bound to soil solids by electromagnetic forces, and this, combined with their limited solubility in water compared to nitrogen, means that only a small fraction of the available phosphorus and potassium is accessible to plants during a growing season. As these nutrients are taken up by plants, the concentration of dissolved nutrients drops, and this changes the chemical equilibrium allowing for more of the nutrients that are bound to the soil particles to dissolve into the water and become accessible. 
The rate of this process is also influenced by factors other than plant uptake, like temperature, chemical weathering processes, microbial and mycelial interactions, and soil pH, and is not completely understood. Due to this complex process, it takes phosphorus about 20 years to fully cycle through the system once added, and potassium requires about 10 years, so maintaining the levels of these nutrients in a soil profile is much different than maintaining nitrogen levels. This is a bit different in areas with high rainfall levels and sandy soils, like much of Florida, where there the soil has much less capacity to hold on to nutrients, and rates of nutrient leaching are much higher due to more water flowing through, so added phosphorus and potassium have a much shorter cycle time, though they are also absorbed more quickly due to the rapid growth possible at higher temperatures. Organic sources of nitrogen will release about 50% of their nitrogen content to plants in a growing season, and about 25% in the following year and this is mostly limited by the rate of decomposition processes that are driven by microbial activity. Microbial processes are strongly influenced by temperature and available water, and it's for this reason that organic systems are much harder to develop in temperate regions than in tropical regions, because of generally lower temperatures with more seasonality and lower levels of precipitation. Once the carbon compounds the nitrogen is bonded to are broken down, it becomes immediately available to plants due to its high solubility, though it then becomes prone to leaching out of the root zone and entering into the groundwater. Due to these underlying differences in solubility and how they interact with cation exchange capacity of soil solids, nitrogen fertilization rates are established based on the expected nitrogen requirements of the next crop to be planted, while phosphorus and potassium sources are applied with the goal of building up their levels in the soil gradually to a specific parts per million range and then maintaining them within this range. Once these potassium and phosphorus levels are adequate, you can begin applying them at the expected crop removal rates to keep their levels in a state of equilibrium. This underlying strategy remains the same regardless of the source of these nutrients, but it becomes much more complex when the sources of these nutrients are organisms or the byproducts of organisms. These are of course not the only nutrients that would need to be accounted for, but it's easier to supply the rest of the plant nutrients because they are needed in much smaller quantities and the same basic principles previously described also apply to these micronutrients. One of the main problems with trying to achieve this with chemical fertilizers is that without sufficient organic matter in the soil to act as a substrate for microbial life, you get a reduced crop response for a given application rate. They also tend to be highly soluble forms of these minerals to maximize plant availability, though they will quickly be bound to soil solids anyway. The solubility makes them prone to leaching and moving below the root zone and into groundwater, or being carried along the soil surface by runoff. Through either pathway, they can migrate into surface water, and phosphorus and nitrogen in particular will lead to eutrophication of surface water by increasing available nutrients leading to algal blooms and anoxic conditions, destroying freshwater ecological systems and potentially contaminating drinking water, or at the very least making it more difficult for treatment plants to purify it. To maintain soil carbon, you need rest periods where biomass can be generated to allow it to accumulate, and this reduces the area available for row crops. These rest periods could just be allowing a field to go fallow, but often some kind of short-term cover crop is planted to make use of gaps in the crop rotation. This is better than nothing, but if you want to maintain very high levels of soil carbon, you'll need to plant some kind of perennial crop or mixture of them, especially deep-rooted legumes like alfalfa or red clover, that can send roots deep down into the subsoil and bring nutrients back up to the surface. This also has the effect of giving the chemical processes I was describing earlier 
time to transfer soil nutrients into the biomass where they are retained and gradually released as decomposition progresses. Obviously, soil disturbance in the form of plowing or digging will burn up the soil carbon, so it should be minimized, but if you want to exclude or reduce the use of herbicides in row crop farming, it's going to be very hard to do that without some degree of soil disturbance. Most no-till methods rely heavily on herbicide application, though there are people out there trying to develop things like roller crimpers to get around this problem. Herbicide termination of a cover crop or previous planting will make it much easier to preserve soil carbon levels, but you are then accelerating the evolutionary rate of herbicide-resistant trait development in weed populations with obvious long-term negative consequences. These physical processes must be taken into account when trying to design any agricultural system that prioritizes long-term sustainability, and they can only fully be accounted for by viewing agriculture as a whole from a systems theory perspective. For this reason, something like annual vegetable and fruit production cannot be considered in isolation from the systems that generate the inputs that are required for their continued operation. They are properly one interconnected system, and systems interactions need to be well understood if this system is to be kept in a state of homeostasis. At the same time, there is not one possible stable state that this system can exist in. There may be an infinite number of possible system configurations for a specific environment that can reach a homeostatic state. Soil nutrient cycling is just one component of this. The spread and buildup of plant diseases, pest and weed populations, biotic interactions of the system with the local ecology, along with many other considerations, need to all be simultaneously regulated and kept in balance by management decisions. The very act of imposing on an area of land an alternative stable state and maintaining that state itself has ecological consequences because niche space is being occupied by domestic populations and is no longer available to the local biota. What's needed is a general theory that can be applied to any such system that can allow us to develop an understanding of the fundamental underlying processes at work and a method of data collection that will allow us to compare our models to the actual behavior of the system so that errors in our theoretical understanding can be identified and our general theory can be continuously developed. Data collection may only be possible within a specific system of agriculture, but our goal is to use a particular system to tease out the fundamental processes that are at work within all possible systems in general. This constitutes the mathematical and computer modeling aspect of the project. I want to put together a general overview of the mathematical models that have been developed and how they can be combined to construct a representation of these physical systems. Abstractions of this kind aren't sufficient, but they can be powerful tools to guide our decisions and to allow us to consider features of the system that may not be apparent from our day-to-day surface-level observations. We can't know the relative merits of specific agricultural methodologies without physically performing them, and even then, we are only trying to establish how they can behave in specific regional contexts. This regional nature of the systems we are dealing with does not prevent, however, a general understanding of how the environmental conditions of a geographical area influence the behavior of agricultural systems. Data collected from specific areas simply informs a still higher level of this general theoretical system of agriculture that incorporates the discipline of biogeography into itself and grounds the entire theory and material reality by constructing a spatial representation of the physical world. 
This constitutes another major aspect of the project, using the theoretical framework of the Hutchinsonian niche space combined with the concept of the discrete global grid to organize data collected throughout the world into a unified geographic information system that can incorporate all agricultural systems into the ecological modeling systems currently being assembled by biogeographers. Actually constructing this would be a worldwide effort on a massive scale that would be well beyond the abilities of any small group of people to accomplish. I just want to draw attention to the fact that these systems are being actively developed, and at least on a conceptual level, this is an important ecological theory that should inform our understanding of agricultural systems generally. Even with very rudimentary and incomplete data sets, this theory has important applications to agricultural planning and would be essential for constructing a global scale representation of the environmental system. I'd like to at least briefly describe this theory and what an information system like this would consist of, because it's what allows for vector space representations of environmental conditions to be applied to all agriculture and ecology. This information system contains within it a representation of the entire surface of the Earth, anchoring the entire modeling system in physical space and allowing all of the other vector space modeling systems to include within them information about their spatial position. This system allows for these vector space representations to not merely describe the interactions between systems and balance their inputs and outputs, but by including geospatial data, they can be transformed into true spatio-temporal models of the entire logistic system. By doing so, all of the data gathered from all operations can be brought together into one interconnected modeling system that can be updated in real time, unifying the entire vector space representation system. This shared and well-defined spatial coordinate system is essential for developing a mathematical model of an economy that can go beyond simple system scaling and proportionality optimization. By establishing the relative positions of system elements, graph theory based on representations of the economy can incorporate distance measurements that allow for more nuanced system descriptions such as representing supply chains as multi-commodity flow networks. To establish this shared grid coordinate system, the surface of the Earth is divided into a grid of non-overlapping regions, where each region is called a cell, and each cell is represented as a point in a nearly spherical coordinate plane. Any polygon that tiles the plane can form the grid, but typically grid squares made by subdividing longitude and latitude lines are used so that cell boundaries correspond to standard geographic coordinate systems such as WGS84 that is used by GPS. This system has several drawbacks. The cells become smaller and more distorted in shape as you approach the poles, so they don't have equal areas, creating an irregular grid tiling. To overcome these problems, many alternative global grid systems have been developed that tile the plane using other shapes like triangles or hexagons to create a more regular tiling where the grid cells have equal or at least more equal areas. Regardless of the particular method used for space partitioning, the overall goal is to create what is called a discrete global grid, or DGG, so that any location in physical geographic space can be correlated with a specific region in a mathematical model of geographic space. This forms a mathematical foundation for a geospatial database that can describe the location or distribution of objects in space, the physical characteristics of a region of geographic space, and how these can change over time. The discrete global grid essentially defines the geographic coordinate plane by partitioning the physical world into regions. These regions are abstracted as discrete points in a coordinate plane and are identified by some kind of geocode system, such as an alphanumeric code. 
This coordinate in space can then be correlated with attributes, like physical conditions or the presence or absence of an object by using a spatial indexing system. In Hutchinsonian ecological niche theory, or at least the way the theory is applied when constructing ecological niche models, the physical space this discrete global grid system is representing is called geographical space, or G-space, and this corresponds to the actual coordinate plane itself. Any species, including all agriculturally significant species, can occupy a specific area in geographical space called its biogeographic range, biogeography just being a branch of biology that tries to understand where things live and what factors influence where things can live. One aspect of the environment that influences where things can live are abiotic environmental variables, the material conditions of an area that aren't biologically determined, but are due to a geographic variation in climate or geological formations. So things like latitude and low temperature gradients, precipitation levels, and seasonal variations in precipitation patterns, the topology of a landscape, or light intensity, and its seasonal variation. Abiotic environmental factors like these are thought of as dimensions of a mathematical vector space. With a species possessing a physiological range of tolerances to these conditions that limits where the species can live within this space. The set of positions within this vector space that fall within the tolerance range of these species is described as a hypervolume in n-dimensional space. By taking local measurements of these abiotic environmental variables and correlating them with grid cells in geographical space using a spatial index, these grid cells become points on this n-dimensional vector space. If the biogeographic range of a species is mapped out, the grid cells can include presence-absence data for the species. They are then given a value of 1 if they are included in the biogeographic range, and a value of 0 if they are not. The grid cells where the species is present, as points in this n-dimensional hyperspace, are points within this hypervolume and can approximate the abiotic tolerance range of the species or populations within a species. Those grid cells where the species is present as seen on a map of geographical space represent the realized niche of that species, that area of niche space where the species actually lives. It's important to understand, in Hutchinsonian ecological niche theory, the niche is something sort of possessed by the species, which is different from niche concept like the Eltonian niche, where a niche is conceived of as an ecological role that might be occupied by several species. Returning to the n-dimensional hyperspace, all of these grid cells occupying points inside of this hypervolume, including those where the species is absent, can then be projected back onto geographical space, and this produces a map of where the species could live given its abiotic tolerance range, if it could get there and the biotic interactions it requires to live there are present, and this is called its fundamental niche, the area where it can live. In this theoretical framework, an ecological community results from the overlapping of different species' biogeographic ranges, which is possible because their fundamental niches overlap and their historical dispersal allowed them to occupy the same area. By studying trophic interactions within these communities, you can then develop an understanding of the biotic interactions each species requires to be able to persist in an area, or how biotic interactions may restrict biogeographic ranges. Biotic interactions are much more difficult to quantify and represent as dimensions in vector space, so they are often just completely ignored in ecological modeling. But trying to find ways of incorporating biotic interactions into these models by using mathematical models from population and community ecology is an active area of research. A model that just includes abiotic factors is still very useful. 
These describe plant distributions and rate of growth quite well, and this has obvious implications for the possible distribution of agricultural crops. In that context, overlapping crop niche spaces in a locality form the basis for possible crop rotation sequences. I've attached three different papers that I really encourage you to read that describe these ideas in more depth than I can do here. Hutchinson's duality, the once and future niche, is an excellent introduction to the basic ideas of Hutchinsonian ecological theory and describes some of its potential applications. Niches and distributional areas, concepts, methods, and assumptions, is a paper on ecological niche modeling and gives a very good overview of the fundamental ideas involved, as well as an especially clear visualization of the sort of map projections I described earlier. Agriculture Biogeography, an emerging discipline in search of a conceptual framework, provides an overview of the potential applications of biogeographical theory to agriculture and is one of the only texts that I've found that argues for incorporating these ideas into agroecological theory. These are really central ideas in modern ecological theory, and they have far-reaching influence in a wide variety of other fields. I first learned about Hutchinsonian niche theory through paleoontology because it's very important for paleoecological reconstructions, a field that is unfortunately often overlooked by modern ecology creating significant theoretical blind spots. Evolutionary theory is of course intimately linked to the fossil record in its study, and ecological thought needs to be informed by the study of paleoecology, otherwise it only has access to what is essentially just a snapshot of evolutionary history. For example, we only know mass extinctions are even possible as a result of paleoontological investigations of the fossil record. This information provides us with vital information about the potential causes of mass extinctions in the past. Background extinction rates are derived directly from the fossil record and can be compared to current rates of extinction. That is how we know that we are currently causing a mass extinction event to develop, not at some point in the future or as a result of climate change, but in the present. Climate change is not the only source of ecological destabilization we need to be connected with. Even if that was not a factor, we would still be creating the conditions for a mass extinction level event at present as a result of our interactions in general with the global ecological system. To add rapid climate change to the situation dramatically increases the likelihood of this mass extinction becoming exponentially more severe than it otherwise would be. To get an idea of how bad a mass extinction event can become, consider that during the end Permian mass extinction event, about 95% of marine species and 75% of terrestrial species were driven to extinction. So it might be a good idea to take the theories from paleoontology into account as well as mainstream ecological thought when we are evaluating the sustainability of productive systems. It almost certainly won't become quite as bad as that, however. The end Permian involved part of the mantle literally breaking through the crust and raising CO2 levels up to about 8,000 parts per million, nearly ending all life on Earth. But if methane calthrates do end up becoming destabilized, it could get pretty bad. Hutchinsonian niche modeling is used a lot in paleoontology to reconstruct ancient ecosystems, but it is also directly relevant to the modern climate crisis because it can be used to predict how different simulated future climate scenarios might affect the ecosystem or species ranges, as well as future crop distributions and yields. This description of biogeography and the Hutchinsonian niche space provides the theoretical background for the next aspect of this project, the division of geographical space into ecoregions to make sense of the spatial distribution of agricultural production, using the U.S. as an example because that's the region I'm most familiar with. 
Obviously, the same sort of thing would need to be done globally to create a global representation of all agricultural regions. The EPA has divided Canada, the US, and Mexico into geographical regions using a hierarchical system of classification consisting of four levels of resolution, where each division is meant to identify areas with relatively similar environmental conditions and ecosystems. This was based on a system devised by Omernick that builds on the traditional classification scheme of biomes based on plant communities by incorporating other geographical elements as well, such as areas geology, landforms, soil types, climate, and land use patterns. The level three ecoregions correspond closely with the primary agricultural lands of the U.S., partly because land use patterns are a factor in determining the ecoregion divisions, and these are each further subdivided into level four ecoregions that show local variations within these areas. 37 of these ecoregions represent the majority of agricultural growing lands in the United States, and they can be somewhat arbitrarily grouped into seven major divisions that I'm calling the Western U.S., the Southern U.S., the Northern Great Plains, the Southern Great Plains, the Great Lakes region, the Mississippi River, and the Southeastern United States. What I'm mostly working on right now is trying to assemble maps of these ecoregions that contain state and county divisions and trying to combine this with all the available county-level agricultural data so I can map out the distribution of major crop types throughout the country. There is unfortunately a surprising lack of this information, but I'd like to at least get a general idea of what information is available. What I'd like to then do is to use this information to model agricultural communities in each of these areas with agricultural systems and crop rotations that are somewhat realistic for the region. At first, these just consist of drawings representing reasonable proportions of subsystems and an arrangement that is convenient for moving objects from place to place while being somewhat walkable. Eventually, I want to create mathematical models of these subsystems that are linked together to model system interactions. I can then get a better idea of how communities located in different parts of the country would need to interact to provide themselves with a relatively complete supply of agricultural crops and how that would fluctuate seasonally. Another major part of this whole project is identifying what these crops are and what a complete list of the agricultural crops that can be grown in the United States would look like. So, I'm trying to organize all of the cultivated plants by their common and species names and then group these together with their taxonomic family and genus. Whatever phylogenetic information I can find is then included to describe these groups as clades along with any information about when these species or intraspecies breeding groups diverged. This is then combined with information about common pests and fungal and bacterial disease susceptibility to try and see if these correspond to phylogenetic groups. What I'd like to then do is include information on historical varieties, when they were developed, and from what lineages, and include phylogenetic analyses of current varieties, though this information often doesn't yet exist. These are again grouped into agricultural categories like cereal and pseudo-cereal grains, oilseed crops, pulses, annual vegetables, nut trees, fruit trees, etc., according to the specific agricultural systems they are a part of, along with the information about the mechanical systems that are used to grow, harvest, and store them. Alongside this, domesticated animals and cultivated mushrooms and other fungi are treated in a similar way, though these would be described in their own separate system of descriptions. I came to all of this, first of all, as a cook, and someone who sees the accumulated cooking traditions of the world's cultures as a great treasure, something that has been painstakingly developed over generations and that must be actively preserved. These traditions are a precarious thing that's never been properly recorded, often handed down one person to another, and that chain can be broken at any time and the information just lost forever. 
It's important information, not just because the food is good, but because it has built into it seasonally compatible ingredient combinations that also tend to be very nutritionally balanced. The ingredients a tradition selects from are also those that can be produced largely from their specific ecological region, and the underlying structures of the meals tends to be quite labor-efficient in the context of the agricultural systems with a low level of technical complexity, because their history often goes back before large-scale food transport and mechanized agriculture existed. Turning food into something that is merely bought and sold, a commodity on the market like any other, not only limits it to the mediocre slop that can be churned out quickly with as little labor as possible, but also because it erodes away into nothing what should be considered one of the central achievements of human culture. Food is more than just food. It's a relationship that we have with other species, with each other, and with history. It's the center entire civilizations revolve around and were built from. It is fundamental to cultural identity and often the last remnant of cultural heritage to disappear in a diaspora population. It is an act of caring for another person, of giving. It is an act of kindness and hospitality, and it is as close to a sense of sacred as I get. In the field of gastronomy, there is no separation between cookery and cultivation. These are one united collection of accumulated human cultural traditions. The organisms we cultivate are natural objects, but they are natural objects that have been transformed by their interactions with us, their appearance and properties are the physical manifestation of human imagination and desires. Crop varieties themselves, along with all domesticates, are just as much a part of this cultural heritage and must be preserved and developed just like the systems of cookery that we have inherited. A tomato is not equivalent to any other tomato. It has bred into flavors and textures, and these aren't permanent features, they are ephemeral qualities. A cook is limited by the quality of their ingredients first. Everything else is secondary. The freshness and care of its cultivation matter, not just to the cook, they matter to the quality of what they are transformed into. You cannot make a food system that can be considered truly developed unless you can achieve that level of quality, which is an incredibly hard thing to achieve. It takes a great deal of care and coordination on a societal level to make a system that is capable of that. That is the system that I'm trying to develop and think that I am approaching, one that can provide the whole of humanity with food that is at the absolute limit of what's possible in terms of quality. You cannot achieve that under capitalism. These traditions are kept alive in the liminal spaces outside its reach, in the home kitchen or in the garden of an obsessed collector of cultivars or in the outer reaches of human society that have managed to hold on to them. Communism allows for these traditions to regain their proper place in human society as a daily celebration of human imagination and skill. If that was all communism could offer me, that alone would be enough for me to be a communist. If the system I have developed were ever to be implemented as a system I could see right in front of me, I can see the gardens and the fields, I can smell the meals and taste them, you would be tapping into the most fundamental drive a human being has. This system can provide people not just with what they need to live, but to live well. I think it could provide much more than that, and I still believe people could construct that world if they were really dedicated to bringing it into being, even with this nightmare world they've woken up into. They've just had all of their hopes and dreams beaten out of them for so long that they can't even conceive of any other sort of existence. All right, so that's it for this week. Um, next week, we're going to get into the second part of this essay, which is all about how we can actually build and plan sustainable farms and housing and kind of contrary to what you hear in disciplines like permaculture, produce enough cereal crops to feed ourselves without destroying our local ecology. So that's all some really, really fascinating stuff. And in the next episode, you'll see that Will has 
kind of drawn up all sorts of little diagrams and stuff for what housing could look like, what farms could look like. So it's really, really exciting. Um, we'll probably put this out. Next week we'll have a main episode out, so we'll probably put the second part the week out after that, kind of depending on when I can get it done. But anyway, like I said, if you have any questions, we can put you in touch. And thanks for listening.